Today we come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of Peter's denial. Now, last week we saw Jesus on trial. This week, Peter's on trial. If you're new with us, we've, over the last several months, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And now we come to one of its most famous stories. But the question I'd like to ask you is, why is this story so well known? Why do people even outside of the church know about Peter's denial of Jesus? What makes it so famous? I think it's because it hits home. I think it hits home with us maybe more than we'd like to admit. So let's dive in, shall we? We're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. 66 through 72. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. So what does it mean to be a faithful witness to Jesus? What does it mean to be a faithful witness? The word witness actually shows up seven times in Mark chapter 14. Seven times. But did you know that the Greek word for witness is martyr? That's actually the Greek word for witness, martyr. It means to tell the truth about Jesus, even if it costs you. Even if it costs you everything. And the question being put forward by Mark is, do you have what it takes to be a witness? Do you have what it takes to be a faithful witness for Christ? Mark not only asks that question with this story, but he also answers that question through Peter's story. Let's look at it closely together, shall we? This story shows us three things about Peter, and in turn, three things about ourselves. Number one in your outline today, the failure of Peter. The failure of Peter. If you're with us the last couple of weeks, remember back in verse 29, Peter made an awfully bold declaration. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> he said to Jesus, you see these other knuckleheaded disciples? 
I'm better than them. I'm better than they are. I love you more than they love you. And when they all desert you, I will stand by your side. Even if I have to die, I will never desert you. That's what Peter declared <laughs> to Jesus. And you say, well, Peter failed. Yeah, yeah, he did. But let's hang on a minute before we just put Peter totally on blast. If you were here last week, you saw in verses 53 and 54 that when Jesus was arrested, Peter was the only disciple who followed behind. He was the only one. Now, granted, he followed from a safe distance. <laughs> he was a pretty good distance behind. But still, he did at least follow. Okay? And that means he was in some amount of danger here. The other disciples were busy breaking the land speed record, running away from the scene. They were trucking it, baby. As hard as they could truck it, away from danger. So, we have to give Peter... A teensy amount of credit here. <laughs> he is at least following somewhat. Okay? He's following from a safe distance behind, but at least he is following. Now the question is, why? Why is Peter following at all? Why didn't he tuck tail and run with his buddies? Well, most commentators think it's because of his bold declaration back in verse 29. See, Peter is scared out of his mind. We know that because of how far back he's following, okay? He is following from a very good distance behind. So we know he is scared, but he just can't shake what he told Jesus. He can't shake it. I mean, you talk about an accountability partner. Peter's accountability partner was Jesus. It was Jesus. He had looked Jesus Christ square in the eyes and swore that he would never, ever betray him. Even if he had to die, Peter would do it. And a statement like that, it just weighs on a person's conscience, especially when it's said directly to Jesus. And so... He's following. He's trying to be a faithful witness to Jesus. He's trying. But of course, famously, he does fail spectacularly. <laughs> In spectacular fashion, he fails. Let's look at it closer together. Uh, let's look at verses 66 through 71. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, 
I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, many wrongly assume that in verse 71, Peter is calling down curses upon himself. But that is not the case. That is not true. Commentators point out that uh, it's a little more obvious what's going on here in the original Greek language that this is written in. They say that the transitive verb here, the transitive Greek verb, makes it more obvious who he's referring to. He is not referring to himself. Would you like to know who he's referring to? He is referring to Jesus. He is calling down curses on Jesus. That's what's happening in verse 71. So Peter doesn't just deny Jesus. He curses him. He curses him. This is a betrayal of epic proportions. Epic proportions. Peter doesn't just say he doesn't know Jesus. He openly curses him. And the second the rooster crows... The second the rooster crows, the horror of what Peter's done comes crashing down like a mountain on top of him. Look at verse 72. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. The Greek language here is very strong. Peter, in that moment, fell completely apart. He fell completely apart in front of the crowd. You see, Peter is Jesus' best friend. He's not only just denied him, he's cursed him. So what is Mark showing us? Mark wants us to see that you don't have to be in a courtroom to be on trial. Ordinary life, everyday life is a courtroom. And every second of every day, you're on the witness stand. When you're at work, you're on trial. When you're at school, you're on trial. When you're at home by yourself, you're on trial. When you're at the grocery store, you're on trial. And the question the prosecution is asking is will you be a faithful witness? Will you be faithful to Jesus? Will you speak up for him? Will you live for him? Even if it embarrasses you. Even if it costs you something. Even if it costs you everything. And Mark's answer is obvious. The answer is no, you won't. And neither will I. None of us will do it. 
None of us. Peter, again, is Jesus' best friend. And for years, he tried so very hard to be a faithful witness for Jesus. Here's a man who had an accountability structure like you and I will never have. Never. And yet, when push came to shove, not only did he not witness about Jesus, he openly cursed him. He cursed him. Peter failed on an incredible level. And so do we. It's incredible. Every day we fail to be the witnesses we are called to be. But thankfully, that's not all this story shows us. Point number two in your outline. The redemption of Peter. The redemption of Peter. You see, this text not only reveals the failure of Peter, it reveals the healing of Peter. The redemption of Peter. And you say, oh, wait a second, preacher. I don't see that anywhere in this text. Peter just looks like, looks like a big loser here to me. I don't see any healing or redemption. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> it's right there in the text. It's right there in the text. And why do I say that? Because would you like to guess who wrote this story? Would you like to take a guess? Bingo, who said it? <laughs> Jason, who said it? Over here. Boom! You get a sticker after the service. See me, you get a sticker. An extra donut for you. Yeah. Scholars are almost unanimous in saying that Mark is getting his information here directly from Peter. He's getting it from Peter. Okay? And here's what scholars say. The reason why. Okay? Mark did write this gospel, but he's not writing it on his own. Okay? He has someone helping him tremendously <laughs> in writing his whole gospel. And here's what scholars say why they believe it's Peter. Mark mentions Peter far more than any other gospel, like way more, okay? Nothing ever happens actually in this book without Peter being there, if you notice that. If you'll read through Mark, you'll see nothing happens in the book without Peter being there, okay? Also, the book gives details that only Peter would know. Only Peter would know. For example, we just read one. Look at verse 66. Verse 66, it says, while Peter was below in the courtyard. Now that's significant. Peter was below. You see, this is the only gospel that explains that Jesus' trial happened on the second story. It's the only gospel that tells us where it happened. Okay? Jesus' trial happened on the second story. The witnesses to the trial were watching from down below. How do we know that? Because Peter knows that. Because Peter was the only one there. He was the only disciple there. Okay, so what does all this mean? It means that 
Mark may have technically written, like with his hand, he technically did pen the story that we read today, but it was Peter who told him what to write. Okay. Dr. Richard Bauckham says, the gospel of Mark is the eyewitness testimony of Peter. That's what the gospel of Mark is. Now, this is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing for several reasons. But the biggest reason is this. Every culture in the world at this time was a shame and honor culture. Every one of them. A shame and honor culture. What does that mean? It means in this culture and in every culture, honor is everything. It's everything. It's at the top of everything that you do or say. Honor is all important. And most Eastern cultures to this day operate like that. Eastern cultures are shame and honor cultures. Honor is held up as the highest virtue and shame is seen as the worst. It's the worst thing you could do. It's to bring shame on yourself, your friends, or your family. It's the very worst thing you could do. So, in this deep shame and honor context, what did Peter do? He publicly humiliated his master. That's what he did. He brought tremendous shame upon Jesus and the other disciples. Tremendous shame. And in these times of the first century, that would mean only one thing. Peter would be permanently excommunicated from fellowship with Jesus and the other disciples. Permanently. Peter's done. It's over. He's been totally and permanently excommunicated from fellowship with Jesus. What Peter did here was essentially commit Harry Carey. <laughs> he officially ended his relationship with Jesus forever. It's over. It's done. So, if that is true, if he has committed Harry Carey, How could it be that Peter wrote this gospel? How could that be? Well, what we're being told here is that Jesus is different than any other leader ever. And Christianity is different than any other religion ever. How so? Well, in John chapter 21, John tells us how so. You see, in that chapter, just a few days after Peter's public betrayal, Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. The movement is over. Peter is out on a fishing boat. He's not a disciple anymore. He's gone back to his old way of life. He's out on a boat fishing. And then suddenly, he hears someone calling to him from the shore. And he looks over, and he sees that it, it is the risen Christ calling to him. 
And what does Peter do? Does he panic? Is he afraid of what Jesus thinks of him? Does he begin immediately rowing in the opposite direction? Because he's ashamed of what he's done. No. John tells us that Peter doesn't even wait for the boat to turn around and head for shore. No, he can't wait that long. So what he does is Peter puts on his clothes, jumps in the water, and swims to Jesus. Now, who puts on their clothes to go swimming? Who puts on their clothes to go swimming? I'll tell you who. Someone who is so loved and so in love I can't think straight. I can't think straight. I remember when I first started dating Catherine, before I would call her on the phone, I would write down what I was going to say. Just to make sure I got my words straight. <laughs> but why did I do that? Because I couldn't get my thoughts straight around her. My brain didn't work right around her. My emotions were just crazy, you know. <laughs> and this is how Peter is with Jesus in John 21. His emotions are going crazy when he sees his master on the shore. And though Peter has publicly shamed Jesus in a deeply shame and honor culture, Peter is excited to see him. Why? Because he knows the heart of his master. He knows that Jesus is not like any other. He knows that. He's been with him for so long. He knows who Jesus is. And so he frantically puts on his clothes, jumps in the water, and swims to his master. And when he gets to the shore, he swallows Jesus in a soaking wet bear hug. <laughs> Just soaking Jesus. I love that picture. <laughs> and Jesus smiles at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these men love me? And Peter says, no. No, I'm not going to compare myself to these guys anymore. I'm done with that. I'm not going to say I love you more than they do. I'm just going to say, I love you. I just love you. I just love you. And Jesus says to Peter, okay then. Okay then. Go lead my church. You're ready. You're ready to lead. Go lead them. And that's exactly what Peter did. We're holding in our hands today testimony of Peter.
Now, this is wild. <laughs> this is wild. There's no culture or religion in the world that would have allowed something like this after what Peter did. But Jesus allows it. He immediately allows Peter back in to fellowship. Not only back into fellowship, he appoints Peter the leader of his church. This is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But why does Jesus do that? He doesn't question Peter. He doesn't give him a list of things he's got to do to pay restitution to get back. No. He just hugs him and says, go. Go lead him. So what is Jesus really saying here? Here's what he's saying. On the shore, he's telling Peter, Peter, it's not your greatest talents or your greatest successes that qualify you to lead my church. It's my grace that qualifies you. It's my grace. And if you're the one to lead my church, then the whole world will know that I am the God who loves to forgive. Peter, your failures only prove that my grace is indeed sufficient. It is indeed sufficient. And that is why this story is so well known. It tells us, it tells us all how much we're loved and forgiven. So, maybe you walked in here today and you've blown it. You've blown it. Big time. Maybe you've done something terrible or made a horrible decision, and now you think your life is on plan B. Because you screwed up plan A, so now you're, you got to punt and rethink things, and now you're back onto plan, onto plan B. But do you see what this story is telling you? Do you see? It's telling you that there is no plan B with Jesus. There is no plan B. It's all plan A. All of it. He knew Peter would screw up. You don't think he knew that? <laughs> and he knew you would too. And he knew I would too. He knew that. He knew that. He knew you would make a bad decision. He knew you would sin. And so his plan A from the beginning was to take your failures and plunge them into his grace. That's been the plan all along. <laughs> to take your sins and failures and plunge them into his grace. Cover them in his blood. And then make something beautiful. Make something beautiful out of your failures. Because you see, 
Christianity is the only win-win system in the world. It's the only one. Because when you win, you win. And when you lose, you win. Because when you lose, He just plunges your failures into His grace and turns them around for your good. Why? So that the whole world will know that He is the God who loves to forgive. He loves it. It's his favorite thing. <laughs> it's his favorite thing to do. He loves to forgive and renew and redeem. He loves it. Why do you think he came to us in that manger in the first place? Because he loves to forgive. He loves to redeem. You're not on plan B. You're still on plan A. You always will be. And you say, well, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, it is. That's why Jesus called his own message good news. That's why he called it that. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It's the best news ever. Oh, but we're not done with the good news yet. There's more good news coming. We'll close with this. Number three in your outline, the preservation of Peter. The preservation of Peter. As we close, let's go back to what Mark is showing us. Mark wants us to see the parallels between Peter and Jesus. Mark is a phenomenal storyteller. Okay? He is intentionally setting up the stories of Jesus and Peter next to each other so that we can compare and contrast. Okay? So what he's doing. He wants us to see the parallels. So Peter is questioned and Jesus is questioned. Peter is on trial and Jesus is on trial. Peter is being charged with something which is true. He is a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is being charged with something which isn't true. He is not a blasphemer. But Peter, though he's been charged with something that's true, gets off. And Jesus, though he's been charged with something that's false, is condemned. But Mark has gone out of his way to show us that this isn't an ironic coincidence. No. Again, this is plan A. This is plan A. It has always been the plan. From eternity past, this has been the plan. You see, back in Mark chapter 14, in the Lord's Supper passage, Jesus holds up a glass of wine and says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. That's what he said to those who were about to humiliate him and betray him. He said, this is my blood given for you. What Jesus is saying then is this is an irony with Peter. This is the plan. It's Jesus' plan to save Peter this way, and it's his plan to save you and me this way. 
Jesus is not just suffering unjustly. He's suffering substitutionally. It's not random that sinful Peter goes free. No, it's the plan. It's the whole point. Jesus is taking Peter's place. Jesus was innocent. Peter was guilty. And it's been the plan from eternity past for them to trade places. For Peter to go free. And for Jesus to put on the chains. He's taking Peter's place. And he's taking your place. And he's taking my place too. It's always been the plan. We deserve the chains for our sin and rebellion against our creator. We deserve them. We deserve it. But Jesus put on our chains in our place. And he was condemned for our sins. And you say, okay, I know all that. So what? So this. Luke's gospel adds something else to this story. And it's pretty incredible. <laughs> Here's what Luke adds. In Luke's gospel, he says, when Peter boldly claims he will never fail Jesus or betray him, Jesus responds to Peter by saying this, quote, Simon, Simon. <laughs> Love that he said his name twice. My mom used to do that to me. Simon, Simon. Dustin, Dustin. Jesus says, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. But I have interceded for you. So that when you turn back, you will be able to strengthen your brothers. End quote. You see, Jesus knew good and well what Peter was going to do. But what is he really saying here? He's telling Peter, Peter, you're going to get through this. You're going to do something awful. Something shameful. Something sinful. But you're going to get through it. So much so that you'll be able to strengthen your brothers. But why? Because I prayed for you. I interceded for you. What is Jesus saying? This word intercede means to represent someone in court. It's a legal term. To intercede for someone means to represent someone in court. Now what court is Jesus referring to? He's not referring to the court of the Sanhedrin or the court of Pilate. He's referring to his father's court. The ultimate court. John writes this in 1 John. He says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. End quote. Now let me ask you this. Why does John say he is faithful and just? 
Isn't that kind of odd? Why wouldn't he say that God is faithful and merciful in forgiving sins? Why would he say God is faithful and just in forgiving sins? Well, let's think about it. Let's think about how it is that Jesus advocates for us when we sin, when we blow it. As we said earlier, we are always on the witness stand at Walmart, at home, at school, at work, everywhere we're on trial. So how is it that Jesus advocates for us in this court? Let's think about it. God can be said to be perfectly just in forgiving us because justice has already been served. It has. Justice has already been served. Our justice has already been served. It just hasn't been served to us. It's been served to Jesus in our place. So when we blow it, when we fail to be faithful witnesses, when we sin spectacularly, when we openly curse God, all our Heavenly Father has to do is look to His right and see the holes in the hands of Jesus. That's all that He has to do. And the Father sees that justice has already been handed out for that sin because of our substitute, our advocate who has holes in his hands for your sins and for mine. You see, you and I are not faithful witnesses, but Jesus is. Jesus is. And his scars are permanently and eternally witnessing to our redemption. Folks, his scars get us in the kingdom and his scars keep us in the kingdom. His scars and his blood alone preserve us. That's what preserved Peter and that's what preserves us. We are redeemed and made new and preserved through the blood of the Lamb. Which is why Jesus says, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Because he has done it all.